Blog Talk Radio. And I Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is brought to you by Help for HD International and is made possible by an education grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I am your host, Katie Jackson, and today our guest is Dr. Ellen Van Der Plaats. Dr. Ellen Van Der Plaats is an assistant professor at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. Ellen received her bachelor's and master's degree in developmental psychology at the University of London in the Netherlands. She moved to the U.S. in 2007 for graduate school at the University of Iowa. In 2011, she obtained her Ph.D. degree in neuroscience under the mentorship of Dr. Peg Napolis. She moved to Toronto, Canada that same year to pursue her postdoctoral fellowship at a hospital for sick children. Broadly speaking, Ellen is interested in uh, neurocognitive development in the context of medical illness, and her research experience spans from various populations, including children born with um, cognitive conditions and or development disorders, childhood cancer, myotonic dystrophy, and Huntington's disease. I am very lucky I got to meet Ellen in uh, Las Vegas. This year, um, she came and spoke at our annual event, and um, she's amazing. Her research is amazing, and of course, she works with uh, University of Iowa, who we all love and um, are so thankful for everything they're doing over there. So I'm really excited to have her on the show with us today. So welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you very much, Katie, and thank you for this opportunity to have me talk on the show. Um, This is the first time, so uh, please bear with me, folks. I hope uh, everything will go okay. You're going to do fantastic. Well, let's start by talking about how you became interested in HD and brain development. Yeah, so um, so in interest in HD, I, I should tell you now, so as you, as you sort of talked about my uh, background, I'm from the Netherlands, and I happen to be from a community that's a very small, uh, close-knit community where HD is relatively common. And so because of that, uh, there's a special facility for HD patients in my hometown, which is quite uncommon, but I just happen to grow up in a town like that. And then in high school, which is a little while back already, I got a homework project, and I had to do some research in a topic of interest. And I had no idea what to do, but I had a vague notion of this of this disease called HD because a friend of a friend, they had a sibling who had it. And I figured, well, you know what? Let me learn more about this for the project. So I visited that local facility that we have in my hometown, and that's where I first came face-to-face with HD. And uh, and that experience never really left me. So then I went to school and I did psychology and skipped forward a few decades. And uh, now I'm doing actual research, actual science, no longer like high school projects, uh, in HD at the University of Iowa. 
why I'm interested in HD is it's, it's, it's a disease of the brain, and I am a neuroscientist. I'm very interested in this particular organ, and, uh, and so HD can help us learn about the brain. Now, about brain development, um, I actually really love to learn about, you know, how kids grow from like, you know, I just had a baby, right? And it's fascinating to witness that transformation from this newborn to this little kid that can do stuff and, and, you know, and recognizes you. And so I really think the developing brain is awesome and we know very little about it. So um, I want to study brain development. So together, I'm interested in how the brain works. And that's particularly in the context of like, you know, how we learn new skills. And Huntington's can help us understand how the brain works and, uh, and and really, my under, my my excitement about this is that uh, understanding the developing brain in individuals who have this mutation uh, might help us uh, might help us understand how we can prevent this illness later on. So that's really uh, a long-winded answer to your question, Katie. No, absolutely. And it's it's so funny you talk about your your little baby. It's so interesting when you start seeing. And then I've learned from from all of you brilliant scientists over this time um, of working with you guys that like it takes a real long time for our brain to develop. And we, but it's it's yeah. interesting because we watch our children and it seems like they develop so fast, right? They're learning so yep. fast. Um, but yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. That's that. so true. We we really like certain like the, when I was at in Las Vegas, like I talked about certain skills that don't even peak until mid thirties. So the brain continues right. to mm-hmm. to develop, and then obviously like even after that, like we call development is through the entire age range. But in really, particularly in the beginning years, we see those those really quick changes in adolescence. There's like a, a huge changes, and then again like young adulthood, like we keep changing. That's why it's such a fascinating thing to study sure yeah so why would we want to look at development of a neurodegenerative disorder that's a really good question. So um, I, d- I should tell you, though, so in my research, I do focus on adult-onset Huntington's disease. And sometimes when we talk about development and, and Huntington's, then um, uh, you might think that it's juvenile's Huntington's, but I actually do talk about, like, an adult-onset disease. So an HD is undoubtedly a neurodegenerative disorder. So by definition, the first symptoms, as we know, start in adulthood. So again, why would you then look at at, um, at development? And, and, and I think this is a really uh, cool question that uh, my mentor, Dr. Peg Napolis, really pioneered. And here's why we sort of think we should think about development. And 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 um, and and it, it really goes into this molecular basic research that really started this this idea of development of a neurodegenerative disorder. So first off, just just observing like having that HD mutation, the CAG repeat expansion, is present at conception. So it's right there. It will always be there. And uh, and children. So people with HD carry that around their entire life. So it doesn't just turn on. So it must have some sort of role right away, right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the other part is that people that, that studied sort of like what wild-type Huntington does. So they, you know, Huntington is a protein that's being uh, created by um, – with an HD uh, gene, and um, and and they and if you inactivate Huntington, you actually can't live. I mean, it's incompatible with life. That's what molecular basic research showed us. So that means it's extremely important. So the other thing okay. that they so you can inactivate it, 
you can't there it's incompatible with life well if you then like reduce it and this is all in molecular research so i should clarify this is not done in in people obviously that would not be ethical but um if you reduce it in in uh if you reduce it by 50% they already see abnormal development so here all this like you know research point to the fact that there's something going on with wild type huntington so now it's kind of a, a small leap to think, well, if wild-type Huntington is so important, what if you have a mutation that has that expansion? It must have something to do with abnormal development. And so um, mm. it's just sort of how we conceptualize, like, why we should look at abnormal uh, at development in a neurodegenerative disorder. It's still neurodegeneration, but before that, we think there's also abnormal development. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, so what is the difference between development and and neurodegeneration? Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, no excellent. Yeah. So, if you look at so so, and I should I should say like if you if you ask that question, it's like well, obviously they're different, but there's phases of development that kind of look like neurodegeneration. So, I talked earlier about Mm -hmm. adolescence, a lot of development going on. Well, in adolescence, the brain undergoes something that we call pruning. And this is the biologic, bio, biology's way to get rid of unnecessary neurons. And so we get rid of it, and that's, and that's good because function gets better, uh, and we, we, we sort of improve, we develop. So neurodegeneration, we're also getting rid of neurons, but now it's not good. So it's, you know, we can't really function as well without these neurons. So I think, sure. to me, look at development and neurodegeneration, the key difference is that, that generally in developments will improve function and neurodegeneration will limit function. But then it's a little bit more complicated, of course, when you talk about abnormal brain development. So kids that have abnormal brain development, we would still expect them to gain new skills, So, but probably not quite the same as kids who do not have conditions that interfere with development. So if I were to have, you know, abnormal development, I might still learn how to speak, but it might take me longer. You know, that's sort of mm-hmm. that abnormal development. But with neurodegeneration, we typically expect some sort of loss of function. So you were able to speak, mm-hmm. but then you lost the ability to speak properly, if, if that makes sense. That, does that answer your question, Katie? Yep, yep, absolutely. And, and I have a – you just – my my uh, I've never heard of pruning before. So when does that happen in our life? I like, guess um, oh yeah, so someone like brain yeah. pruning, yeah. That. Yeah, no, that's a that's so so um so brain pruning happens around like age like we see, usually see that like so gray matter increases increases mm-hmm. from from little kids until like about 15 14 years old and it peaks and then it goes down. That's completely normal. Um, so that's what pruning sort of, it, it's sort of a, it, it, like I said, like it, it gets rid of these excessive, um, neurons we don't need. So, um, um, it sort of does a cleanup and say, these neurons are not as effective. We're going to get rid of that. That's what we think at least. And, and, and so that's what we call pruning. So we actually see already in adolescence when the people are about 14, 15 years old, it kind of depends. Some people will do a little earlier or later, but in general around, 14, 15 years of age, we see that 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 pruning um, phenomenon, and it's uh, completely normal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I know that was off. Sorry, I threw that at you. But when you get to talk to like brilliant people like Ellen, and those things come up, you're like, wait, tell me more. Um, <laughs> um, so people typically get this disease, Huntington's, as we know, in their 30s and 40s. So why would we look at brain development in the earlier years? 
Yeah, so that that's a I think a really good question um because like, you know, we don't we don't really see symptoms, right? In kids that develop uh, adult onset Huntington's, we don't really see symptoms. So, but we think something's going on. And I think the what what, what we expect is that having an understanding of the development of 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 the brain um, we know how this brain, how this disease comes about, how it emerges, how it 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 sort of its its own natural history, and by no, because like we expect that a disease like Huntington doesn't come on one day and it's there. Something happens before that, and all these mechanisms before that will tell you a lot about how the disease works. And by knowing how the disease works, we can actually do something about it. That's that's the you know that's the under underlying you know. Um, uh, explanation for that. So, and this is particularly helpful if we want to prevent the disease. So, sure, no, we're all like thinking about like you know how can we knock down the the, the gene and and all that stuff. And and if we want to do that, eventually, of course, we want to prevent HD from happening altogether. And I think for that, we really need to know when we can, you know start treatments when is it safe to do mm-hmm. so and and when are we getting the most out of the child before you know we um we we hit them with treatments that you know uh, to stop the hd yeah yeah so it's 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 so interesting because you know we talk about the 30s and 40s um as a community as as the hd community we've been saying this happened so much earlier than the motor manifest this happened so much earlier yeah you know and 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 I remember when that's Peg, such a good um, point. Yeah, and your yeah, when your team came out and Peg was talking, Doctor Napolis was talking about this, and Sonia and and, and of course uh, Doctor Doctor, uh, um, uh, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on that? I, I mean, there were so many people on your team that came up with this amazing research, yeah. <laughs> but you know, and then of course you, Ellen, you guys came out with this, and it was like we've been researching this, and we've seen it this earlier on, and it's and all this research came out. Families were like, oh, now it's making sense what we've been saying. Right, uh, we've been yeah. seeing it happen yeah, so I, much earlier. Yeah, yeah. And to follow up on that, like we also define the onset by motor onset, right? And and sure. and that's mm-hmm. sort of what we use to say now now somebody has HD. But what I what I learned from people in the community is that there's often behavioral changes that might already sort mm-hmm. of hint that mm-hmm. something is happening. But again, we don't use yep. that as a definition. So you know, it's it's also just us like as a as a as a research community like just saying this is what it means to have the disease and 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 obviously it's not just motor right so um right it, it, i think part of it is too just like having an understanding of of you know what it really all encompasses the whole entire illness and some of these changes like behavioral changes or cognitive changes in thinking ability is that sort of a, already a hint that the disease is, is coming about and, and you know and, sure. and that kind of goes back to your question about neurodegeneration at that point it becomes hard to sort of say what is you know start of the illness and what is actually abnormal development so um, and, yeah. and, and we think they are interlinked yeah well so we know that we see changes in like the striatum but why don't we see anything in the children 
Yeah. So, so in the research, so we looked at brain development, and we got mm-hmm. we, sh- we we did brain imaging and looked at the striatum, which is really uh, an important region for HD. And we found that mm-hmm. development pattern was different for kids who had inherited the mutation versus kids that did not that had not inherited the mutation. And and but you're right, we don't really necessarily see any obvious signs of you know these kids are are are. Uh, different, not anything obvious. There might be subtle signs that we're missing, but I think, you know, talking about this, this, we can't say, hey, this kid has probably inherited the mutation. That kid doesn't. That, that's it's, it's sure. really subtle. And yeah. the thing, the, the reason for that is thinking that that um, what we call, and I, I love saying this, is the mutant steady state. So what I mean by that is that what we think is that neurons in children who have inherited the HD mutation are not as healthy as neurons who in children who have without the mutation. And I should I should be clear about this. So it doesn't mean that the neurons in these children are sick, but they aren't quite in top form either. That's sort of where I'm getting at. And and this is okay. what this mutant steady state is. And as the name sort of implies in that, it, it's a steady state. So there's no obvious signs of HD, but uh, you know, with with the word mutant there, you, you also know that things are not quite normal either. And uh, we think that these, like, neurons can keep things going for a number of years, and there's compensation mechanisms perhaps going on, perhaps with the cerebellum, and, that, and, and so there's no obvious symptoms. But because they're not in top form, we think that these neurons are, are less equipped to deal with stressors such as aging. So everybody undergoes aging. The system is always a bit under stress. And generally, we can deal with that. But if your neurons are not in top form, you might not. And so what we think is these kids, they don't have obvious signs, but there's already things going on. And as they grow into adulthood, they then the neurons then become prone to, you know, say aging and and uh, the effects of mutant Huntington, and then you start that process of neuronal decline, and as the decline then processes, then you get hit that critical point where uh, the neurons start to really, uh, you know, um, decline, and that's where you see the overt symptoms or the obvious symptoms of HD come about. But we think that in part that because there is this mutant steady state, so you know it's not they're not quite sick, they're not quite they're not quite right either, and these compensation mechanisms. That's the other part of that question. Why we think that um, uh, these kids don't necessarily show any really obvious signs of um, of uh, HD, even though we see changes in the striatum, and and mm-hmm. and sort of go into the cerebellum question like it's kind of an interesting region because it's usually least affected in the brain in in individuals with HD and even though even in those who have juvenile Huntington's so if you sort of think of the cerebellum as the big brother taking care of its little brother the striatum we think that it can help it like limp along for a while and then uh. you know when the striatum gets really sick the cerebellum can no longer compensate, and, and and we think, and this is this is something we need to sort of, you know, we need to obviously investigate, but we think that that's when, you know, we get the noticeable symptoms of HD. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so is there, so with the, your research, um, what did you guys find from your research? What were your big findings from the research? Yeah, so the big I know you have finding- a lot of research, but. I, no, I, I, I will, I'll talk about the, the, the big findings for the research 
for in terms of development is this striatum mm-hmm. uh, developmental pattern. So we looked at kids that participated in a Kids HD study, and so all of these kids came from families that uh, that had HD in the family. So they were all either you know they they didn't know their status, and we did lots and lots of work to make sure that nobody knows anybody's status, like gene status. So um, we had kids that were classified as gene expanded, what we call, and kids that were classified as gene non-expanded. So then we looked at the striatum from the ages to 6 to 18 years old. And our gene non-expanded children, so the kids that are not going to develop HD, we saw that that showed that really typical pattern I was talking about earlier where we see that gray matter increase, and then around 14 it peaks, there's sort of a peak, and then it goes down and we start the pruning. It's a very typical development of gray matter. That's exactly what we see in these kids. But then in the kids Mm -hmm. that did inherit the mutation, we see something completely different. Here, they actually striatum started out bigger, than the kids who didn't do, uh, inherit the mutation and steadily went down. So if you, if you were to sort of look at the different patterns, it's a completely different pattern of development. So that to, that was sort of the, the, the main key finding where it's like this bigger striatum to start with, and we don't see that obvious like increase and in pruning. That that normal pattern is gone. It's, it's sort of it's bigger to begin with, and it's possible that it did that increase in pruning, uh, increase earlier on, but we didn't measure that young, so we started at six. And uh, and so we see that, that sort of, we call that bigger, we call that hypertrophy, and we see that early on, and then that steady decline over the ages uh, that we studied, which is until 18 years old. So that was abnormal mm-hmm. brain development, uh, abnormal striatum development. And the other regions that we looked at looked pretty much the same. So it was really something that seemed to be limited at least where we looked in the striatum. Okay. See, and this is, oh my, it's so cool my, for it to me even to hear about this because my kids have been involved in the study since they were young. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so my children started, we're a family of research. We love research. My husband uh, loved research when he was with us. And um, it's just so, it's so amazing to think that why is, why is it important to be involved in clinical studies, this is why. To our listeners, this yeah. is why it's important uh, because yeah. we have to learn oh, and, and I, in order to grow. Oh, and absolutely. Yeah. And I cannot express uh, my gratitude enough that, you know, having these people, like all these people come in from all over the country because, you know, we're in the in Iowa, the Midwest, and we flew everybody <laughs> in. And, um, yeah, and so uh, so just to plug in for our next study, we're going to do a multi-site study. So we're going to follow up on this because, uh, like, one study is never definitive. So we want to um, – do uh, we're going to do a multi-site study, uh, uh, several sites in uh, across America to uh, follow up on these findings and also go further into young adulthood. And we find that that's important because typically research sort of starts at like 30s, 40s, no, 40s rather, and then and we we looked at the six to 18 years old, but where we really are lacking is that young adulthood, like 20s. So we're hoping to fill that gap too, and 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 hoping to find the same uh, strain and, and with more kids. So you know, there's always opportunities to participate in research. That's for sure. Yes. Well, let's talk about the, the what everyone always wants to talk about is the CAG, and as far as yep. brain development goes. What role does the CAG play on brain development? 
Yeah, so we uh, looked at CAG repeats, and uh, and our sample would happen just to be that we had um, uh, we are we're kind of enriched in the kids HD study. We're kind of enriched for kids that have more than 45 repeats. So it, it, as opposed to more adult studies, where it's usually like 42 repeats, but we are we have more of those larger repeats. And um, mm -hmm. we found that, you know, how I talked about how we have that sort of what I said was hypertrophy, and, and then there was this steady decline in individuals who have the, the gene-expanded kids. So with CAG repeat, what we found is with each incremental CAG repeat, that pattern was exaggerated. So say that mm -hmm. ch children with 59 repeats, say, would have the biggest striatum to begin with and had the fastest decline versus, say, uh, somebody who had inherited, like, 42 repeats. So really it was sort of that pattern exaggerated. So um, CAG repeat did have seem to have an impact on it, and, and we detected it over 50. Uh, our, our limit was to 60. Uh, so we detected that, that effect uh, for the larger repeat lanes. And, and that's what we could detect with MRI, which is a pretty, you know, all things considered, a, pit, a pretty, like, what we call a gross measure of, you know, Developments. It's not like we're looking at molecules. We're looking at volumes of the brain, right? So, um, but sure. yeah, we even yeah. saw saw with using these techniques that uh, the the bigger the repeat, the more exaggerated that abnormality was in the striatum. Wow, that's fascinating. So this is so my final question for you, um, Ellen, is I think probably the most important is why do we care about development? And what do we hope for the future? Yeah, so care about development. I think by caring about development, we can invest in a future where we hopefully do not have HD anymore. Of course, that's not where we are right right now. But our hope is really, at least, is is speaking for myself, at least, is to get rid of HD altogether. And and I think sure. we can do that by uh, treating kids earlier on. Um, kids who have inherited the uh, the mutation, uh, in order to prevent it, we need to treat them earlier on. And as you know, um, they're currently trying to, these treatments in, in to, to slow disease progression. Well, eventually we want to just not have the disease altogether, right? And, and for um, this prevention to work, uh, we need to know when we can start treatment. And and so um, we need to learn how what, what what is the disease like. We need to have a sort of an autobiography of HD, and it needs to start right from childhood onwards. It doesn't start just in 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 adulthood. It's something that happens over time, and there's abnormal development, and we need to know all that in order to make it go away. In in my opinion, if and that that's my hope for the future. I really hope that we won't have to deal with this anymore and that we don't have to test the researches anymore, really. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, thank you so much um, for everything you're doing, Ellen, and, and it was so, and I thank you for, for coming to Vegas, and I felt so bad because um, this is like breaking science, and everyone is so interested in, in what's going on in Iowa and this amazing team working on it. And so, you know, all the doctors got up and spoke for the day, all of our keynote speakers, and then questions came. And a couple of community members would ask questions. But, you know, uh, 
poor Ellen was just drilled um, with questions from professionals um, and industry <laughs> and then neurology because they wanted to know all these these answers. So Ellen sat up there. I, you definitely sat up there the longest um, and received <laughs> the most questions and definitely the hardest technical questions out of the day. Um, but of course, you know, um, uh, Dr. Van Der Plaats is is an amazing researcher and knows knows it like her team does. So she definitely um, rose to the occasion and answered all the questions for everybody that day. Um, but this is very exciting. The research papers are published um, that came out. We actually do have those on our website um, for everyone to read and the, the recent published papers out of the University of Iowa. So if you guys yeah. want to read further into that. Um, and um, thank you. Um, thank you, Ellen. And everything you guys are doing with Dr. Pagnopoulos. It's amazing. And uh, without your guys' work, we will not be able to know the right time to, you know, administer these treatments and what the right thing to do is. So we are thankful for all your work and all that you do. And um, well, without you guys, thank you we for coming on the research, show with me. So. <laughs> yes. Well, so thank we need, you. We need, and, and thank we need, you it's for a two-way street, us. absolutely. So thank you very much. I should thank yeah. you and you and the, and the whole community for rallying behind us, and, and we cannot be more thankful for that. So I, I appreciate you being thankful for me, but I really think it should be us thanking you guys. So thank you for having me. I was really, mm-hmm. it's really thrilling to be on the show. So yes, yes, and we will we will talk soon. We definitely. Um, Ellen is definitely one of our favorites, so like from the Dr. <laughs> Napolis lab, like we like Sonia and, and Peg, so definitely look at our schedule for 2020 and look at our speakers, and she just had a baby, but we would love to sneak her off for a little while and get her to speak for us when we can, um, so I think we will wrap up the show for now. Um, just a couple updates, you guys, our holiday program did open, so if you guys know anyone that needs assistance from the hol- uh, for, during the holiday uh, season, this is through Help for HD International's Relief Program. Um, this is unfortunate. It's a U.S. Um, program. That the funding is actually only allocated for U.S., so I, I'm sorry for that. But if you do have a family that is in need this holiday season, please have them reach out to us. The portals are open. Um, next week, tune in. We're going to talk to Emerald Health Pharmaceuticals about what they are working on. Um, same time, same place, Wednesday, 1 o'clock. We will talk to you then. Until then, everyone have a safe week. Thank you. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.